Uh, thank you, Naomi and the Foundation for organizing this and uh, RMIT for bringing me across. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, cities, like I said. I'm going to touch on Melbourne a little bit, but not too much. I'm going to talk about um, other cities, and I'm going to be particularly that really annoying uh, Englishman that comes and talks about compact European cities in places like Melbourne, which is not the right thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and just yeah, briefly, as Andrew said, my, my work straddles a few things, and I like this quote from Ernesto Nathan Rogers, I think Richard Rogers' uncle, um, who said that the job of the designer is kind of running from the spoon to the city in a very kind of Milanese way that he uh, would think in that way. But, and most of my work is sort of at the spoon end of things, actually. It's not at the Instagram end of things, um, advising cities. It's more on uh, designing spaces and places. Um, but some of it is to do with the city. But I think it's important to see that those are connected. And I guess that, again, what Andrew was alluding to, that the very detailed human experience of interactions is something that we can bring into city strategy and vice versa. So I'll talk about that. And just get this livable city thing out of the way right away. Um, it's not a, a terribly useful term, of course. I know um, people in Melbourne are rightly proud of being a livable city, and it is. Um, but it's, it's a very loose term, obviously, and it doesn't really cover um, what it really means to live and work and play and do things in a city. And I actually wondered if whether thinking of whether a city is healthy or not might be better. Healthy in a broad sense of the word. And I actually looked at the World Health Organization of Healthy City, the definition of it, sorry. And I picked out in white at the end there the, the last words, which I think are really interesting. It's not the sort of thing you'd necessarily expect to find in a World Health Organization definition of a healthy city. You might expect things about life expectancy and um, healthcare-related issues. But actually, they're talking about community participation, empowerment, a very kind of wonky phrase, intersectoral partnerships, which kind of means joined-up things, and participant equity, so equity. And I'm going to talk about that a bit more, perhaps, because for me, that's... That's what really uh, a livable city perhaps would be better framed as, a city where people feel they can shape the city, they engage in the city, the city belongs to them, and it's an equal city, and it's a participative city. Those are really prof maybe more profound um, ways of engaging with a city and being in a city. But in the context of a world that we're in now, that's very hard to do, so now I'll switch gears a bit to getting things done. There's this phrase that the US military came up with after the Cold War, when they'd realized that they sort of accidentally built the military, or not accidentally, they built the military to fight the Soviet Union, and that was no longer there, effectively, and they were facing a very different kind of um, enemy, effectively. And they came up with this phrase VUCA, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. That, in a way, frames the world in which we're in now, as I'm sure many of you will feel. It's volatile, we don't really know what's going to happen, things are increasingly sort of ambiguous, the certainties of the 20th century, those sometimes simple black and white simplifications have fallen away into something more akin to a mist or a, a fog, perhaps. And so that's where we are, and design has to wrestle with that, and design actually can help with that to some extent. Many of qualities of design uh, are dealing with things like ambiguities, wrestling with things that are um, complex on purpose. And of course, there's good VUCA and bad VUCA. So um, good VUCA is this one. The, the UK government, who admittedly doesn't have the best track record for getting, um, well, uh, anything right, actually, but certainly right now, um, a few years ago made a prediction about the number of uh, photovoltaic cells that people might be installing on their roofs. But just literally the kind of uptake of cells. And you can see on the graph there on the right-hand side, the, the, low K, the low UK government prediction by 2030, the medium one, 
But that almost vertical line there is what actually happened. People, of course, as soon as photovoltaic cells became a reasonable price point, more or less, they flew off the shelves. Why would you not? Why would you, why would you not have any energy from the sun? It's a pretty obvious thing. But that was the best prediction of the UK government about four or five years ago, 2012, I think. They got it so radically wrong. But that's kind of a nice outcome. That's good. There's more photovoltaic cells in the world. This is probably a bad VUCA um, in one image or something almost rhyming with VUCA. Um, so it can go that way as well, just to be clear. So it's very hard to think about the future. And I quite like this quote from Michael Spence, the prize-winning economist, who talks about how we just don't know what it's going to be like 10 years from now. This is very hard if you're doing urban planning, urban policy, by the way, because they're usually predicated on slow, long-term predictions. We just don't know. So the best thing you can do is make the transitions as effective and painless as possible. So this means being agile, adaptable. It means being able to maneuver in and out of things when they don't work. And that's something, again, that planning finds quite hard. Um, a colleague of mine, Alex Sinicus Norfis, put it rather succinctly when she sent me these uh, images from a Japanese ski resort that she was at. No one knows what the future holds. Snowboard cannot stop immediately. There's <laughs> another way of saying that. Or, um, you know, trees do not move, you move. Trees are hard, bones are fragile. Which, uh, is a, I like the graphics on these ones. And the best one is, in January, a friend of mine was buried in an avalanche without a beacon. It was cherry blossom season when we found him. Which is <laughs> a delightfully uh, pithy and precise way of getting across the same message about we do not know what's going to happen. So be careful and adapt. Move out of the way of the trees. But there are some things we do know. And uh, the reason we know things is different. It's not to say this is the, the right prediction of population growth for Melbourne. This is, this is the predicted population growth for Melbourne. And you see where it is. Um, this is from the RMIT Center for Urban Research. Um, the issue with that, that may or may not be true, because you know, people will move to places for all kinds of reasons. And between now and 2050, there's all kinds of changes that could do that. The issue is that we would be building roads in that direction. And the roads can't change. If we start building those roads now, they're going to be there in 2050, one way or another. You don't tend to dig up roads, unfortunately. And the roads would reinforce that growth. They won't help that growth. They won't deal with that growth. They'll reinforce it. So we have to ask the question, is that the kind of growth pattern that we actually want? And if so, fine. But is it really the growth pattern that we want? Because we're about to lay down the roads in that direction. And the roads are the tricky bit, not the people that the roads are intended for, because they are actually quite flexible. So you need to step back. And I like thinking, there's a quote from uh, the great fictional detective Bunk in The Wire, <laughs> who talks about this, what to do in a situation like this. And uh, you need to soften your eyes. The, the issue is, when you're looking at uh, the previous graph, it looks very hard and analytical. And when you have a department like, with all due respect, Vic Rhodes, um, if a big department called Vic Roads, you're going to get roads. A clue's in the name. So they look at these things in a very hard, analytical way. And it's, it's time to step back and soften the eyes and say, well, what else is going on? We'll see if this uh, audio plays. You hung over? Just saying, you look like shit. You know what you need at a crime scene? Rubber gloves. Soft eyes. Like I'm supposed to cry and shit? You got soft eyes, you can see the whole thing. You got hard eyes, you stand at the same tree, missing the forest. Oh, zen shit. Soft eyes, grasshopper. So we need to step back at this point, soften the eyes a bit, and say, well, what's actually going on? We can't just look at the road and the population growth and the graph. So I'm going to talk about a few things that are in front of us, things we could take advantage of, potentially. 
that are more agile and adaptable, what I tend to call this kind of networked urbanism. This is a, here's an example of what I mean by a networked approach, which isn't necessarily digital or anything. I mean, some of it is, because everything is at some point to do with the digital these days. It's just sort of like oxygen, it's all around you, but it's, it's also physical. Um, Nicholas de Monchot is a professor at UC Berkeley, and he wrote a great book called Local Code. San Francisco, we're looking at a $1.5 billion sewer upgrade to deal with excessive stormwater to do with climate change. So more storms, more water, need more sewers. It's very, it's like the graph I just showed you. $1.5 billion. Nicholas and his team put together a very quick piece of work where they found 1,500 small plots around the same region, and they said, well, if you just planted trees on those things and put some grass down, you'd get the same effect. It would soak up the water before it goes in the sewers. You don't need to spend the money on the sewers. That's $700 million, half the price of the sewers, plus you get parks and trees and things like that. So you get also the other things that they do, mitigating heat island effects, greenery, which is nice, uh, cleaning the air, everything that trees also do, a place for kids to play, mini parks, effectively. Kids don't tend to play in sewers, or they shouldn't anyway. Um, a sewer can only do a sewery type thing. So $1.5 billion for the sewers, which is a big kind of centralized, typical response, 20th century response, I'd say, versus finding the 1,500 small plots. Traditionally, that was quite hard to do, because how would you find the 1,500 small plots? They did it very quickly using basically mapping. GIS tools are able to find those things now. And of course, you could work in such a way now where you could have a community sharing the maintenance of the parks because it's in their interest to do so. These are tools that we have in front of us now versus the traditional approach of basically handing over a big check to one of Trump's mates to do a big infrastructure job. So that's, that's the difference ahead of us now. We have this networked, distributed pattern versus the centralized pattern. And some work that I've been doing with Gemeente uh, Amsterdam, which is the municipality in Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam, effectively, is looking at that sort of approach. And there's a few things here. How do we avoid the folly of planning, drawing the picture of 2040 and assuming that's what it's going to be like, and instead sort of wiggle our way towards the future through a series of adaptable interventions? So we do something, we take a reading, we do another thing, we take a reading, we do another thing. It's like navigating a small boat instead, basically. You're taking constant compass readings. You're able to then zip around the iceberg or in the Japanese ski poster, move out of the way of the tree. That's very different to traditional planning, actually. Um, what that relies on, um, I know Rory might talk a bit about this later, is this understanding things move at different paces. A road is a very slow layer. Stuart Brand's diagram here shows that a building is made of different layers. This building is made whenever it was made, it sits on a site which, as we heard earlier, is eternal and has been here for hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Uh, the service layer within it, these lights might come and go every 15 years or so. The Wi-Fi will change every two years, that kind of thing. Those, all of those things are moving all the time. The furniture can change on a daily basis as required. That's the way buildings work. To some extent, that's the way cities work. A road, again, is a slow layer. I'm interested in the faster layers, the more malleable ones, the ones that you can adapt and change. So looking at these things, we understand what's a fast layer, what's a slow layer. In Amsterdam, I was looking at things like, how would you, again, soak up the water before it goes into the sewer? The diagram on the left is sort of business as usual. How do they deal with excessive rainfall? In Amsterdam, they build a bloody great canal, usually. It works very well. It's a 500-year strategy. It's pretty good. Um, however, you could also, on the right-hand side, green up the neighborhood around it, and then you could get away with half the size canal. I mean, you're saving a lot of money in that sense, but you're also building a lot of greenery everywhere, and it's a joined-up solution, a distributed pan. It's not just the big central system. 
diagram on the left, usually they have a, a district heating plant to supply heating to a neighborhood. So that's quite local, usually in Amsterdam. You have a district heating plant over there, and it powers the neighborhood around you. It's fine, again, and it's worked for a long time. It's just that Amsterdam wants to turn that off at some point because it's gas-powered, and by, they want to move away from gas by 2027, I think, something like that. And it's not very agile. Once that's there, it's there. It's there for 50 years. It's a 50-year bet, basically. And you can't really like, turn it up or down. It is what it is. On the right-hand side, you could also now have a network of microgrids, so renewable energy, solar cells on the roof, battery storage in the basement on each building. This building could have it and power a lot of this building. So you have that then as a network of grids, which means you can get away with half-size district heating plant. You need the district heating plant to generate energy and heat, particularly electricity, because that has unpredictable patterns. The Champions League football half-time, people are going to turn on their kettles. You need the base load to deal with that. Otherwise, no one gets sees the second half, which there'd be a riot about. Um, but those, that little grid here can do all the bits in between, can do the demand responsive stuff. Together, it adds up to the same, far more adaptable system there. Here's another example to do with mobility. So these are beginning to emerge now, these little autonomous shuttles. This is made by a French startup called Easy Mile. Um, and this is kind of version one of something that by version five might be all right, I don't know. <laughs> but still, it's here and now. This is on a campus in Lausanne. And it's very, very slow. This is speeded up film, just so you know. That's how fast it goes. That's speeded up fast. That's slow, sorry. That's how fast it goes. That's speeded up. So it goes about 15 kilometers an hour, which is, you think, oh, that's quite slow. But then you think, actually, well, how fast should it go on a campus? How fast should things go? We sort of, the problem is we've been making things move too fast for a very long time. Hence, they can stretch out. Hence, Melbourne can stretch out. But on a campus environment, or I'd argue on a in a neighborhood scale, Maybe in a Collingwood scale, in a Fitzroy scale, or a Knox scale, these might be quite interesting, zipping backwards and forwards to the station, taking a dad with a pram. You know, what happens when it's raining? What happens when you've got to get a big artwork home or something? And it's interesting because it's a bus. It's not an individual autonomous vehicle. It's a bus. So it's a social thing as well. And it's an eight-seater. There's another one. This is good. Almost gets him. <laughs> Serves him right for looking at his phone while he's walking. But anyway. So it doesn't run into people is a key feature. Uh, it's electric. Um, the big number there, which I haven't referred to yet, is that number that ETH and Zurich, uh, one of the leading technical schools, and MIT both talk about. If you had a shared autonomous fleet of those things, so imagine little community buses running around, continually picking people up, dropping them off at the station, taking them wherever, not on routes, but where you need to go, you could reduce the number of private cars required in a city by as much as 80%. So that's predicated on numbers for Singapore, New York, and Zurich region, none of which are Melbourne, obviously, but Melbourne in some way has elements of all of those. Zurich region is actually about 2.3 million people and has a lot of low-density stuff in it as well. Um, Singapore, obviously, is very different to Melbourne in bits of it, but not that different in other areas. So not to say that that's the number for Melbourne, because we don't know what the number for Melbourne is. We need to do that maths one way or another and see what it would work. And there's all kinds of issues about whether that will work or not. The key thing, however, is the ownership. Who runs that thing? Is that Uber or is that a community group? Both are possible. Both have different effects on the city. Um, another thing, if, so if you take all that parking out of the way, Sorry, take all those cars out of the way. You don't need that parking. Given that cars are parked 95% of the time, a huge amount of space in cities is taken up by parking. 30% of a US city, on average, is roughly to do with parking. 
So what we were saying is normally you have like a parking minimum. This graph shows as people go up in a development, you've got to keep on making more parking. You know, it might be like 1.5 parking, parking spaces per apartment or something. There's a tight linear relationship, more people, more parking. In the future, in the near future, in the next few years, we could exert downward pressure on that. Right now we could do it. So we want that parking to basically disappear at some point, because at some point it won't be needed, hopefully. So we want that graph actually to follow the lower line there, not just parking to continue to infinity, but actually begin to drop to zero if possible. That would unlock all of that value, that value being space, the space you could do something with. Instead of parking spaces, it could be anything. Again, parks, kindergartens, more buildings, whatever. So we looked at different strategies in Amsterdam, and these have gone straight into the planning documents now for Slausburg, this district we're working on. Um, ways that the parking could basically have a sell-by date. At some point, it needs to fade, you know, go off like a pint of milk. So the, the one on the left is using the phasing of a construction project to say that over the course of the project, we want the parking to disappear. It can be there on day one, that's fine, but by the time we get to day 10, we don't need that parking, it needs to go. The one on the top right, the donut, is if you have underground parking to begin with, underneath, say, two towers, can you design the cap in between to be popped off at some point so that you end up with a courtyard in the third stage there, which could then have a kindergarten and a you know, Bunnings or whatever underneath it, or whatever you like. All of these are ways of being able to adapt. So we're beginning to right now think about how do you avoid locking in a future that you don't want. You have to deal with now where people expect a parking space, particularly in Melbourne. How do we unlock that? And the value could be all kinds of things, drop-off points, green space, public space, flood water storage, whatever you need it to be. And this is significant. Uh, in the US, they found that an, a parking adds roughly 17% to the cost of an apartment, per apartment. So if you don't have a car, you're still paying that. <laughs> so effectively, uh, non-car owners, of which there are many, subsidize, they found in the US, probably to a tune of sorry, $440 million a year one way or another, of uh, extra unnecessary rental. That's changing now, so there's a movement beginning to emerge. I think we can conceivably begin to call it a movement. Paris are pushing the car out of the center, at least. Um, Oslo has declared that it wants no cars in the center by about 2025. They're now just squeezing the parking, the on-street parking right now, just to start that process. Um, Barcelona is kind of finally realizing the vision after about 150 years of the superblocks, where they separate the through traffic away from those things. And inside the block, I think you have, I think, 10 kilometers an hour or something for particular kinds of vehicles, because that's where people live and get stuff done. You don't need cars in there. Helsinki's moving away from car ownership by 2025 and so on. I know these are the usual suspects, but still, they exist. <laughs> it's happening. This isn't a usual suspect. This is happening. Mexico City just removed its parking minimums and changed them to parking maximums. So you no longer have to make 1.5 car parking spaces for apartment in Mexico City, as of about a week ago, I think. There's a maximum. You can do 1.5 if you really want to, but there's no minimum. That's a huge change. That's the largest city in, in North America um, shifting in that direction. That's a big deal. So maximums, not minimums, is interesting. Um, just briefly in Melbourne, you know, we have a problem around parking. This is just north of RMIT, you know, in between RMIT, University of Melbourne, Queen Vic Market on the left. It's a huge opportunity in that space. You've got 50,000 students either side. Most of the streets there are, are really car parks masquerading as streets. 
There's not much traffic on them. There's a load of parking. In fact, look down the middle. There's like parking even in the middle of the street and parking either side of the street. You could get a row housing down the middle of that street and get two streets out of one. You could get a tram line down there, greenery, solar cells, whatever you want. Um, so that little bus I showed you now is actually um, going to be operating in Helsinki from September on actual streets, not on a campus. They've been testing it for 18 months. And again, it's super kind of slow and sort of noddy and postman pat, but you know, it's kind of... <laughs> it's quite playful in a way, I also quite like that. It's, as I said, it's version one of something that's interesting. The key thing here is to engage with it, particularly from a public policy point of view. These are high-stakes things. Jean-Louis Misica, the deputy mayor of Paris, said this about three weeks ago. We've got to design the rules of the game now, before 2020, otherwise we're locking in a pattern for 2030. And the key thing is in whites there. He said, we should announce before 2020 in Paris, no privately owned autonomous vehicle will be allowed. Only mobility as a service, which means shared autonomous vehicles. That's a huge statement. Really super interesting. And yes, there's a long way from a deputy mayor saying something in an interview and policy and regulation happening. But still, that is a city leader stepping forward and saying, what was the quote? We are going to shape the city <laughs> before the city shapes us, the utopia line from last night. Um, that is, a, do I win my 50 bucks? I don't know. So that's Jean-Louis Misica stepping forward and saying, oh, no, we're going to decide actually as the administration the way we want Paris to be, not Mercedes-Benz or Volkswagen. It's in Volkswagen's interest to generate more cars, of course. That's what they're built to do. They wake up every morning breathing cars. That's what they're there for. That cannot be the future we need with autonomous vehicles. Because if it's not the little cute shared thing I just showed you, it'll just be private cars becoming autonomous cars, which will lead to more congestion, actually not less. And if it's driven by this thing, that's also problematic. This is Uber's self-driving car in uh, Pittsburgh. Now it's running in Texas. I think they got kicked out of Pittsburgh for <laughs> being Uber. Um, and uh, that's deeply problematic, not because of all the issues that you already know, the deleterious effects it has on cities, actually, but just think about it economically. Um, well, before that, actually. Just, uh, this graph came out this morning on CityLab, so I'll just put it straight in. This is the effect of Uber and Lyft on Manhattan. The average speed is dropping in Manhattan now, largely because of the ride-sharing businesses. That's the only change over this time period, realistically. The subway is a disaster in Manhattan at the moment for other reasons but the, the, the speed is going down because those cars are moving into Manhattan and they don't really want to leave it because that's where the fares are. It's not being run as a system, it's being run as a market. That does not work for transport in a city. It just cannot work. And that's the beginnings of the evidence there. The key issue, another key issue, is if you spend a dollar in a Melbourne taxi right now, there's a fair chance that dollar will stay in Victoria one way or another. He or she will spend it at the local shops or pay tax or use a local accountant or give it to his mum or whatever. If you spend it on Uber right now, about 20% of that already is leaving Melbourne and Victoria and heading to California one way or another. If it's an autonomous Uber, as in there is no driver, most of it is heading to California. None of it's staying in the local Victorian economy. Unless you can get taxis, that's taxis with an E, uh, from Uber, and not many governments have shown much proficiency in getting taxis out of these guys yet. So that's what's at stake, potentially. Not just a mobility question, it's also an economic question. One thing is reorganizing to face that. This is another big story that not many people know about. About a month ago, Helsinki reorganized its city government for the first time in decades and went from 33 separate departments, left-hand side, to four, to begin to address these challenges holistically. 
So you have education, environment, culture and leisure, and social services and health, basically people, if you like. Um, that enables it to start joining these decisions up a bit. An electric vehicle is an energy thing as well as a mobility thing. And as I just demonstrated, if it's autonomous, it's an economic thing and an agency thing, as in an ownership question as well. That has to be approached holistically, and this is government beginning to respond in that way. Other kinds of mobility that are changing the way we could wire the city together. This thing, I think, is probably not a big deal in cities. I can't see how we'll ever get that to work in, a, in an urban environment, particularly, except at very high altitudes, which some towers might be able to pull off. This is just as interesting. It's also a distributed, networked, on-demand, real-time, analytic-based, data-driven solution, <laughs> a.k.a. a guy on a bike. Um, this cargo bike, you know, they worked out in Berlin, could take 92% of all the deliveries in Berlin on one of these things. You know, anything smaller than a fridge-freezer, you could get in one of those. Most Amazon stuff, which is what's clogging up the streets in London at the moment could go on one of those. Because he's got a mobile phone, like I said, you can send a message saying, I'm going to be home at 8, not 7. Can you come then instead? So it is sort of real time. It's totally the same as a drone, effectively, but much better because it has a person on it, and it's a bike. <laughs> so better in almost every way. But the same dynamics. Electric bikes, as in these things, are really interesting. They begin to extend the range. I did a project last year with Punct. Um, working with three design schools, and these were the designs that came out for e-bikes. This is Design Academy Eindhoven, because in, in the Netherlands, as David will know, people often sit two per bike, so they made a nice long seat for you to have a, what we used to call in the UK, a backy. <laughs> I don't know what you call it in Melbourne, something vivid, I'm sure. Um, but that also then becomes somewhere where you can sit by the side of the street, it becomes a little impromptu bench if you need it to. This is a lovely one from Lausanne, where you attach that little motor to the wheel of an existing bike, and it makes it an electric bike. It just speeds up the, the uh, rotation of the front wheel. And this is the one from London, which was kind of designed to deal with London's slightly tougher environment. But these e-bikes are super interesting, and I think there'll be a big change in cities that not many people are watching. So what does that do to the city itself? Well, this is from a sketch from a project we did a while ago. Um, the streets become something far more open, more like a piazza, more like public space in that sense, because the safety is packed into that thing, and there's far fewer of them. You don't need to build the safety into the street itself in concrete and brick. You don't need curbs, traffic lights, pedestrian crossings. All of those things can fade away. And actually, the movement becomes much more fluid. It becomes more like this series of things moving around constantly, which, funnily enough, this is Sydney in 1906. So Sydney in Melbourne. But that's what the street was like in 1906. You see that constant fluidity there, that lovely kind of flow, what Jane Jacobs would have said is like a ballet, effectively. People moving in all directions simultaneously. There's no real kind of hard edge to the, to the pavement there, really. It's, it's very, very blurry. Constant row of trams. Sydney, of course, had the second biggest tram network in the world until 1958 when they burnt it in two years. Um, but that kind of fluidity was, is kind of amazing. LA had the biggest tram network in the world, as Mimi will know. Um, so what is the street at the end of the day? We did a sketch. This isn't ours. This is MVRDV's. Um, not really a street, more like a backyard. But the question, I, I use this just to say, what is the street going to be like under those conditions? Is it somewhere where there's tons of greenery, where kids can play football, where it's naturally dealing with stormwater, it's naturally cooling itself? All of those issues that we currently have, if we headed out into the suburbs of Melbourne, you'd be able to unpick I call this kind of principle tech in city out. Throw technology at the city, what we might actually get is pull the city that we really would like out of that. So in a funny way, we're using robots to humanize 
the streets if we get that right, use autonomous vehicles as the excuse to unlock the kind of streets that we might have wanted anyway. And they're just in the background. They've enabled that to happen, but what's in the foreground are people, trees, grass, buildings, life. Energy, similar patterns. Tesla Powerwall enables you to have battery storage at home. That's beginning to unlock all kinds of things. This is their really awfully ugly solar roof thing. The rooftop there is solar cells. So if someone must have designed something, David, you could do this, that's actually plausibly attractive and in a kind of an urban scale that we need for a solar rooftop, that would be very interesting. That would change the way we do it. I mean, this is what it is in Freiburg, which is totally plausible, it seems to me, but anyway. And this is what it is in Perth, which is really interesting. This is Landcorp, the state government. This is a super interesting project. I don't know where it's up to. I think Rory might touch on this as well. So solar cells on the roof, battery storage in the basement. Each house is um, increasingly self-sufficient. But also, they shuttle energy across the block. So the neighbors are sharing energy there. If I've got excess energy in the evening, if Rory needs it, I give it to him. The interesting thing, of course, if Rory's uh, annoyed me during the day for some reason, as is his want, I might not give him the energy. And it's like, so this is kind of, how do we understand that? This is a social contract then. You could use that dynamic to bind together a community in a very interesting way. Shared ownership of the infrastructure, I think, is the big deal. Energy without energy companies would make a huge difference. You'd change consumption patterns and be able to build a form of resilience around that. If you get that wrong, if you monetize it or you make it awkward, then you get people falling out with each other over kilowatts. <laughs> You know, from my roof to his roof. It could get very Ballardian very quickly. Um, so these are high stakes, and we don't really understand how to find energy and social together in the same way, because who knows where the energy for these lights is coming from? <laughs> I don't know, country Victoria, a, a coal-fired power station, or the roof? I've no idea. So it's really out of sight, out of mind at the moment. This pulls it very close to home. So the, what's at stake there is kind of a civic gain, potentially, a, a gain at the city level super local economies, as in blocks, neighborhoods, streets, streets that are their own power station. How do you do that with a civic sensibility so you still feel part of the city and you don't pull the drawbridge up and say, well, my street's looking after itself, so I don't know what you're doing. You know? The data could stay there locally as well, as in the, I, only Rory and I need to know about our NEJ data at that scale. It doesn't need to go any further than that. I don't know why I'm picking on you, Rory. You're a very nice man. But, you, know. well, you can have my energy. Um, but this is a very different way of thinking about smart cities. And Shannon Matten's quite right in this. You know, in the normal smart city world, citizens are reduced to basically like volumes of data and consumption. What I'm talking about is the exact opposite of that, as you know, Shannon would um, articulate more clearly than me. But there is a way we can use these technologies to bind things together, not reduce people to data points but actually make it very human interactions. Around housing, this is very interesting, in uh, community-led housing in Berlin called Baugruppen. So this is basically people buy a plot of land, they develop themselves. It has an architect and an engineer, of course, all of those things, same kind of building in a way. But the ownership model is completely different. It's not led by a developer, but it's led by the actual users and residents of the building. It just flips the whole model the other way around. The buildings are more sustainable, because if you're designing the building and you're living in it, then why would you have unsustainable energy and resources? Of course you'd have sustainable, of course you'd have solar cells on the roof. And it builds in social resilience. And interestingly, I think it maybe offers, from an architectural point of view, some really interesting possibilities. This is a bad group and block in Berlin, and there's 45 kids that live there. So they designed that entire courtyard just to be a big, 
playground for the moment. It's just a big shared garden. All of the kids can pour out into that. It takes you know, three or four adults to look after them, 40 kids simultaneously, more or less. Because they're well-behaved German kids. <laughs> um, and that's the kind of design insight that comes from working with people. You would not tend to get that in a traditional commercial development where you're just saying, well, that building is just two units, two bedroom units or three bedroom units. We don't know who's going in them because you know, it depends who buys it. This is the other way around. You can design around real people and their real desires. These are private spaces on the top of that block. Um, you know, so that room on the right, it's not literally, but I think uh, in one of these blocks, there's a spare apartment which is just left empty. The, the designers, owners decided to leave it empty because they knew that at some point, someone's, there would always be someone's mother-in-law in there <laughs> at the weekend visiting across 40 families. You know, there's always going to be someone's parents coming to stay, so they stay in that apartment block. So it's just left empty. Anybody, so you know, one week it's Rory's, the next week it's Mimi's parents, the next week it's Naomi's parents, and then it's my parents. You know, it just runs on rotation like that. You would never get that in a normal property development. You'd never tend to have a normal book, a whole apartment left empty. They'd try and sell it. So that's again a sort of insight that comes out of designing with real people. Incredibly interesting. Su Fujimoto. Uh, for Muji, did a kind of sketch of what it would mean to design with shared spaces in mind. This is his kind of sketch of it for an exhibition. It's not quite like that, of course, but that's an interesting provocation about designing ultra-private, ultra-public, and many shades of shared in between, which is really interesting. Of course, there's a tradition in, in that kind of Japanese architecture about building around the real complexity of people. Atelier Baobao do that incredibly well. And as Andrew pointed out, Nightingale here in Melbourne is a homegrown version of and to some extent. Very, very interesting to see how that flourishes. You know, the thing I pointed out, of course, is 20% cheaper as well, because you're not paying a developer's margin on it, potentially. Fabrication begins to change the way that you can build, so a community can begin to build small buildings, things in between that as well over time, which is a very different kind of thing. So the last housing project I'll show is this one in Zurich, called More Than Housing, um, which is also Bow Group and also community-led, run by cooperatives, um, 50 cooperatives. It's huge, 13 buildings, 400 units, 35 retail and community units. Um, it's extraordinarily successful. And it went through this 18-month process of designing with people. Here are some Swiss people talking. Um, here's some more Swiss people talking. <laughs> and building and designing themselves, like growing out the garden together, all of those things. What's key, there's no public subsidy here, really. This is all just done through a bank loan in the same way that another building is done. And yet the rent's still 20 to 30%, and they're going to pay back the loans before they're due, actually. It's been very successful. Highly diverse, car-free, effectively. There's a few shared electric vehicles, things like that. The energy generated on site, even in Switzerland, where the sun shines intermittently, 45% of that energy is coming from solar cells on the roof. And interestingly, they've left four hectares back to grow into in the future. Um, it won an award, and what David Island said is interesting. One thing there, shops are let on the basis of what the community wants, not who can afford the rent. It's kind of curated in that sense, which you can do if people are involved. And it's in the context of Zurich moving from 25% not-for-profit housing to 33% not-for-profit housing. And uh, in Architectural Review in the UK, they're talking about this is actually a private initiative, but the outcome is public life. If you get that right, this isn't social housing. This is something in between. There's some great references in about more than housing there, Self-Made City by Christian Ring about the Berlin Bau Group and thing. And Nicholas Mark is the book to read on taking apart the entire property sector <laughs> and then putting it back together in this way. 
Um, there's a long history of this. Giancarlo De Carlo said in 72, you know, a building is not a building. It's only made relevant by the group of people it's intended for. And that's hard to do in a traditional model. But if you bring that people in from the first place, then the building becomes relevant right away. So these are all grid-based systems or non-grid-based systems. I've talked about energy and the typical model on the right here. Power station out in country Victoria, grid in the city. The alternative is PV and wind with power, power wall in the city. Grid-based mobility like mass transit or the autonomous shuttle. And what's key here, it's not or, it's and. You need the base load, you need metro in Melbourne for sure. You also could look at the autonomous thing for the gaps in between. They work together. You need a base load of energy. You also could use the local microgrids. That's the adaptable layer, that's the flexible stuff. So this kind of grid, non-grid duality is actually an addition between them. So what if everybody could afford this bespoke for most types of housing? What you've just seen is self-build and bespoke done at a community scale. What if energy was generated locally and owned locally? And what if Uber was effectively not Uber, but a form of public transport? It's the same thing. It's just an app and a bunch of lawyers, basically. <laughs> you can make an app. We can make an app in six months, given 10 good people. Be done. Only needs to work in Victoria or Melbourne. It doesn't need to scale to the world. Most people don't need it to also work in Shanghai and Sheffield. You know, you're just in Melbourne. Um, so the question is, can we steal the dynamics of all of that stuff without having to import the ideology that goes with it? <laughs> can we take Uber's technology and leave aside the politics and reinvent that in Melbourne for Melbourne's condition? Um, uh, the City Mapper, which is a good app in the UK, actually have done something very interesting. They've started a bus, so they've gone from app to bus. And this, is, this has this whole thing in a nutshell. The way they describe the thing in this kind of tongue-in-cheek blog post to Silicon Valley, a social, hyper-local, multi-passenger pooled vehicle. Note to the rest of the world, it's a bus. <laughs> All of these things are entirely commonplace, well understood, you know. And they, they, of course they use technology. How can you not use technology? So the last thing I'll just talk about briefly, if I have like two minutes, is um, how do you get people on board with this in another way? Ownership is the key thing, I think. That is genuine participation. But even in these places like Oslo and Paris and Barcelona, there's resistance and furious backlash and fierce backlash, all of those things to the parking thing I showed you. But, and partly that's because the way we engage people currently around these issues is a bit like this. This is in London anyway. This is a planning notice saying something big is going to happen in the end of your street. <laughs> and the way we do that in London is we tie a piece of A4 paper to a lamppost in the rain and hope you might look at it. And, um, the chances of you actually looking and engaging are pretty minimal. And of course, um, even if you did look at it, it wouldn't really tell you much. It would basically say something's going to happen. Uh, you can look at this incredibly awkward, badly designed council website to find out more. 17,000 clicks later, you might get there. I made this film just to stop looking at these things. It was driving me mad for a year, so I just kind of captured them all. And then I put some Philip Glass in the sound direct to make it extra sad. But it, it, it's just a kind of, you know, it's like a metaphor for the planning system. When you see it kind of draped around the bottom of a lamppost. And it's even badly designed words. It says, you know, uh, it says, what does it say? It says, what's going to happen in big 36-point Helvetica bold? As if, you know, something's going to happen to me. That's the starting point of the conversation. Not, would you like to engage with something that could happen in your neighborhood? So one thing we're looking at is... Um, with Ericsson is how will we do that differently? This is a very techy way of doing it. You could just design a better piece of paper, to be clear, and we should do that. 
But if you had a planning notice, this is for Stockholm, but it, we shot it in London, that enabled you to hold a phone over it and then say, yeah, there's a bike rack proposed here, or it could be like this, you know, or it could be like this, what do you think? And if you're interested, save it for later, and then join in when you get home or in the pub, whatever. You know, we're making a toolkit here, a kit of parts. That's the discovery bit. And then when you go to a planning meeting, this is in our office, <laughs> um, and there's a physical model on the table. That really works for people. But could you also have some data in there? So you still have the physical, tactile object. Everybody loves models, you know, and they really do work. But you can do that. Well, you can say, well, if you turn it that way around, because the shading is different, you'll get less sunlight. Let's have a conversation about that. You do that in real time. You know, I've been in numerous meetings. I'm sure many people in the room have been in meetings. This is when us and Allies Morrison were working with Imperial College about their new campus in West London. The model totally works. It's a beautiful way of engaging many people around a space at the same time. We've been playing with blocks since we were two years old. You know, we all understand how to do it. What happens at the end of the meeting is that we go away and go, right, see you in a few weeks then. We've got to go and do some maths. <laughs> then we'll come back. And everything slows down and it never really works. You want that kind of to and fro that you could get here, where you have the physical model, and you have a bit of implication of the decision. If we put two stories on there, the traffic will change. But we can have that conversation in real time. Maybe it comes down at that point. So finally, um, one thing we put together for the Bartlett last year with Joseph Creamer and Marco Ferrari was looking at this layer of the city and just understanding what's that made of, this layer I've been talking about. It's kind of vehicles and power units and kind of cleaning robots and bikes and stuff. And we got people to brainstorm them and draw them and then start putting them together in pieces, but drawing from the basic atomic units, not really buildings, but the bits in between. We use scissors and photocopiers to make them actually think. No computers were allowed, which is horrifying for the students for about a day, and then they got over it. And they started gluing it together. And we, we gave them a set of rules, joined these things to make neighborhoods for 100 people, then 400 people and scale down on the photocopier. OK, now 1,600 people. Drawing, drawing, discussing, discussing. Oh, Andrew, you've got a football pitch. That's fantastic. But I've also got a football pitch. So what are we going to do? Do we need two? Well, I'll give my football pitch up. It can be a swimming pool. Then you can come to my place. You know, that kind of conversation. You've got a data center. Brilliant. We can use the heat from that to heat the swimming pool for free. So that's what's going on there. And we got multiplot it up on the wall. And it was building and building over the course of a week. It was the messiest course the Bartlett had ever seen. This cleaner stopped cleaning after two days and just gave up. And then eventually we end up at the end of the week, again, through multiple kind of zooms down, pinning up this generated city that had come from the unit of a chicken coop and a bike rack up to a city of 12,000 people or a town of 12,000 people. At this scale, as you could see, and going through that kind of process of building and connecting and asking these questions, what connects to what? And there's all the detail in there because of the magic of photocopiers, actually, and pens. So all those lines are in there. You've got these lovely kind of variations and iterations. Um, and lots of complexity. It's kind of, you know, very interesting conversations. This process of how would you build a city up in this organic way, but shaping it as you're going along. Bits of politics in there as well. So that was designer as enabler, not sole author. Designing as a process of decision making. And we're looking at systems and rules, but starting at the human scale. So that's, this is my summary. So the opportunity before us actually is immense. We could put the cities together in very different ways. All the things I've shown you are things available to Melbourne as much as anywhere else. And we only have a few years to do that. That's the thing. You build those roads, you're stuck with that version of the future. You can't unbuild them. Or you can, but it's very hard. Whereas this lighter, more adaptable layer enables you to move and adapt as you see the city growing and shape that as you're going along. 
Shared equitable ownership is another feature of the layer I've talked about. It's very hard for a community to own a road from here to the Mornington Peninsula, <laughs> except via a toll system, which is not really ownership in any meaningful sense. Genuinely holistic, adaptable and malleable, human-centered, proper participation, so involving people, but also people's ownership. And you see all the way through that, governance is actually a very engaged thing. It's, it is um, totally engaged with shaping the rules of the game of the way that the city plays out. And ultimately, the guiding principle for that is what is the city as a public good? That would be the thing to have in mind. Thank you. <laughs>